I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 9 this morning. Luke chapter 9, we're actually going to look at 18 through 22, uh, not 10 through 17 today. But if you turn to chapter 9, verse 18, we're going to pick up today where we left off last Lord's Day. If you were with us, you know that we looked last Lord's Day at the feeding of the 5,000, which was really the feeding of probably 15 to 20,000. But if you've been with us more than a week, you know that we started our walk through Luke some time ago with an introduction by Luke concerning why he was putting together this narrative, a narrative that had been compiled, has been compiled, that our faith might be strengthened, that we might have certainty concerning the things that we have heard, the things that we've been taught, and that certainty indeed comes as we study through this gospel account. You'll recall this gospel account began with the, the foretelling and then the birth of John the Baptist and then the birth of Jesus. And now, uh, nine chapters later, we've moved ahead about three decades. Uh, John the Baptist has now been executed by a wicked ruler named Herod. And Jesus now in today's passage will speak of his own death. He'll foretell his death uh, actually two times in this chapter. Uh, but that is something that the disciples don't fully grasp and understand at this point. And we'll look at that as we walk through this passage. Today we're going to look at just a, a few verses, 9 verses 18 through 22. And at this all-important question that Jesus asks, who do people say that he is? Who do we say that he is? And so as we look to this count out of reverence for God's word, I want to invite you, if you're able, to stand together as I read for us today's passage. And this is what God's Word says. Now it happened, as he, Jesus, was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. If you would pray with me. Father, these things that Jesus said indeed did happen, just as you providentially said that they would, and they happened for a reason, that you might be glorified, that we might be saved, and, and yet, Lord, there are many who, who miss this, who misunderstand who Jesus is, why Jesus came, what Jesus did, and what Jesus is doing, what Jesus will do. And so, Father, I, hope, I pray that you would help us not to miss these things today. Help us to better understand this passage, to better understand what it means to have faith in Jesus. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. And the question that we are looking at today, the question that is posed in our passage is simply this, who is Jesus? It is the question that Luke Asked in the beginning of this gospel account, it is the question 
that Luke has then been answering in this gospel account. This account that begins with that dedication to Theophilus, that uh, official, that ruler, who at that point may have been a believer or perhaps was considering faith in Jesus. And either way, Luke is laying out this uh, well-researched and well-examined narrative given to him by eyewitness accounts and primarily through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And, and he has now led us through uh, the childhood of Jesus, the youth of Christ, and then the beginning of Jesus' early ministry. As we have seen now the gospel proclaimed and people respond to that gospel, that this gospel of the kingdom that we've been learning about has been put forth before the people. And so it has been verified through many miraculous events. Jesus has healed the sick. He has freed the demon possessed and oppressed. He has even raised people from the dead and he has given authority to do these things to his apostles who have gone out and done these very things in his name. People are hearing, people are believing, and yet there is still great confusion in this time about who Jesus was. And there's great confusion today in our time about who Jesus is. And so as we look to this account, let's be reminded of what God's word tells us and teaches us. As we look now at a series of questions, questions that Jesus now puts forward to his disciples, now beginning with the first question there before you, who do the crowds say that Jesus is? Who do the crowds say that Jesus is? That is the question now that Jesus puts forward. We pick up again in verse 18 where Luke tells us that Jesus was praying alone. He had pulled away, he's praying alone, and then the disciples come to him. And at this point that they're with him, he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? Now, if we are only reading Luke's account, if this is the only narrative we have before us, then it would appear that Jesus has just come from feeding what the scripture tells us were 5,000 men, but in addition to those men, women and children, so likely 15,000 or more have been miraculously fed by Jesus, who has taken the meal for, for one boy and has miraculously, with that meal, uh, created out of it a meal that would feed thousands upon thousands. If we're just reading Luke's narrative, then it would appear that Jesus has just done this, has pulled away his praying, has now turned to the disciples and said, who do the crowd say that I am? Which we immediately then think of that crowd, the crowd that's just been fed by Jesus. But when we put together the other gospel accounts, we understand that this event happened sometime later. Again, the gospel writers don't just give us this chronological full outline and full detail of what happened from point A to point B and what happened next and what happened next. We, we can put together all the gospel narratives to find out these accounts. So, for example, what we find when we look to Mark's gospel is that right after Jesus fed the thousands, he had his disciples get into a boat across the Sea of Galilee, and while they crossed the Sea of Galilee, he went and dismissed the crowds. That is the account, Mark tells us, where then later uh, the disciples witness Jesus walking on water. But that's not the only thing that happens between the feeding of the thousands and this event we read about today. Mark tells us there are six other very significant events in the life and the ministry of Jesus that take place. And so I say all that so that we might understand that some time has passed 
uh, more ministry has taken place. And during this ministry, as we've already seen in Luke's gospel, uh, there are many crowds, not just that crowd, but many. And I believe when Jesus is asking a question, he's not just referring to the crowds who have witnessed these things, but crowds in general, crowds who had not witnessed firsthand the ministry of Jesus, but certainly the crowds that had heard about Jesus, who had heard people tell them about this miracle-working rabbi. And now, some two years into the earthly ministry of Jesus, in preparation for what is to come, well, we're kind of turning a corner in Luke's gospel, where he is putting forward now very this very important question from Jesus to the disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? And so they answer him, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets of old, has risen. So you'll notice Jesus, he asked this question to the disciples, in this case, I believe, to the twelve, and then they're all answering him. Perhaps Peter says, well, some say John the Baptist. And then perhaps Andrew says, well, you know, others say Elijah. And then another disciple says, well, you know, others say one of the prophets who's risen. And perhaps they start throwing out the names of these prophets. We know that this was the, the public opinion of Jesus' day. And we've already seen this very thing, these same three mentioned in this gospel account, as Luke tells us about Herod the Tetrarch and, and what he had heard about Jesus, and he had heard these same things, that the word that had been given to him, that had been communicated to him, was this thing. We read in verse 7, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some Elijah had appeared, and by others one of the prophets old had risen. And he was hearing these things concerning Jesus. And this, of course, was concerning to him because he was the one who had ordered John the Baptist to be beheaded in the first place. And so it may seem a bit peculiar to us then that people would be saying that Jesus was John the Baptist. I mean, certainly people had seen Jesus and John the Baptist at the same time. <laughs> uh, they would know these were two different people. We know from the gospel accounts that there's that scene where John baptizes Jesus. There are witnesses to this. People saw this. But we have to understand that the day and the time that we're looking at here, that there were certainly those firsthand witnesses who saw John and saw Jesus, but there were thousands upon thousands of others who, who never met John the Baptist who were not baptized by John the Baptist, who perhaps never even met a disciple of John the Baptist. But they knew about the reputation of John the Baptist. That they knew he was this one who comes on the scene, this voice crying in the wilderness, this one who's calling particularly the religious leaders of the day to repent. The one who is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And now these crowds who have heard this about John the Baptist, they see Jesus, and what is he doing? He's calling people to repent. He's calling out the religious leaders of his day. He is preaching the kingdom of God. And so there are some who perhaps confuse the two, but there are others who, as we know from, Her from what's mentioned about Herod here, who believe that John the Baptist, who had been beheaded, was now resurrected, had come back, and Jesus was the second coming of John the Baptist. 
There were some who believed this about Jesus. There were others, we read here, that said that Jesus was the second coming of the prophet Elijah. Now this is likely related to a prophecy that God had given his people in Malachi. And Malachi ends with this in chapter 4, verse 5. God says, Behold, I will send to you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Least I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so God's people during that period of time, this 400 years of silence, they were holding on to this word from God through Malachi, this word that told them that this great one was coming, that he would come, Elijah resurrected, the return of Elijah, and Elijah would proclaim and preach these things. And so some, in, in knowing this prophecy, had then misapplied this to Jesus. But we know from Luke's gospel in particular, the angel Gabriel makes clear that this prophecy was related to the coming of John the Baptist. In fact, Gabriel tells Zechariah, John's father, that John would be one who would be a forerunner of Jesus. He would go before the Messiah. He, he would proclaim, he says, in the spirit and power of Elijah. So, so like Elijah, John would go and in that same spirit would call people to repentance and proclaim the kingdom. But you have to understand, people in this day, they, they saw Jesus as a great prophet. And some of the miracles he performed, as we looked at last Lord's Day, that they then applied to these prophets of old. And so when they would learn, had learned about Elijah giving people bread, Elijah raising the widow's son from the dead, and then they hear or witness these things related to Jesus, well, they then believe Jesus was the second coming of Elijah. And then the disciples tell him, of course, there are other prophets that have been mentioned, that, that you're some prophet of old. Hey, everybody seemed to have their own opinion. Some perhaps said, well, Jesus is the second coming of Moses. And, and those who witnessed Jesus uh, feeding the many in the wilderness, uh, they would relate that to what God did through Moses. The others would have said that Jesus was the return of the prophet Jeremiah, and then many others would say many other prophets. Something I find interesting about all of this is that all of these rumors have to do with Jesus being the second coming of somebody. <laughs> that, that Jesus was the resurrection of, and yet what seems then to confuse the disciples is Jesus speaking of his own resurrection. Now here he is, and they're saying, well, people are saying you're the second coming of this person, the second coming of this one, the second coming of this one, and yet uh, Jesus would preach of his own resurrection and his own second coming, and that would confuse them greatly. Now you think about this question that Jesus posed to the disciples, who do people say that I am? In Jesus' day, all of these answers that are given to him have to do really with, I believe, that, that religious community who had studied God's word and then were trying to figure out who Jesus was. I imagine if, if Jesus was to ask that question of us today, we would have very different answers, wouldn't we? I mean, who do the crowds, who do the people in our day say that Jesus is? 
There are many in our world today who just believe uh, Jesus was a prophet. 1.9 billion Muslims, that's what they believe about Jesus. And some years ago, I had the opportunity with some of our church members to, to travel to Malaysia. And we had members at that time serving there and studying there and we partnered with missionaries there and we went and visited a, a mosque there, an enormous mosque. And outside of that mosque was a, a display, a, a list of the prophets. And, and as you followed through the Old Testament prophets, then you got to Jesus, who they believe is just another prophet, and then ultimately to who they believe is the greatest prophet, their belief, Muhammad. Two billion people who believe, among many others who believe. Well, Jesus was used by God, but, but he was just a prophet of God. And they deny the divinity of Christ. They deny the resurrection. And then there are others who deny even more than that, who believe that Jesus is just fiction, that, that he was made up along the way, that, that, that no Jesus ever really existed. One very liberal theologian in his book, The Quest for the Historical Jesus, said this, the Jesus of Nazareth who came forward publicly as the Messiah who preached the ethic of the kingdom of God, who founded the kingdom of heaven upon earth and died to give his work and its final consecration never had any existence. There are many today you'll talk to about the gospel of Jesus and, and they will just outright deny that there ever lived a Jesus. But I think an even more popular and growing belief about Jesus today isn't so much that he was a prophet and isn't so much that, that he was just made up, but they have a Jesus of their own making. <laughs> that, that they take the historical Jesus, they deny much about him, and they just apply to Jesus whatever they want to apply to Jesus. And so you open up the Bible and says, well, well here's what Jesus says. And they, well, you know, Jesus didn't say that. Now, not my Jesus. You know, God's word is clear. Jesus is clear that this is sin. This needs to be repented of. No, 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 no. Not my Jesus. My, my Jesus is a loving Jesus. And my Jesus is an accepting Jesus. And my Jesus would never give me desires for this thing if this wasn't something Jesus wanted of me. My Jesus accepts me. My Jesus doesn't judge me. Why can't you accept me? Why are you judging me? That they have invented in our culture, Jesus of their own making. And then others who believe that Jesus was just some moral teacher. And so they try to take the, the ethics that they agree with of Jesus, you know, turn the other cheek and apply them to Jesus. We could spend hours today unpacking all of the false beliefs in our day of Jesus and, and refuting all of these things. But I find it interesting in this passage that as the disciples and in all the other gospel accounts, as the disciples say to Jesus, well, some say you're John the Baptist, and others say you're Elijah, and others say one of the prophets of old, that Jesus, according to these accounts, doesn't refute any of that, doesn't say, well, let me explain to you why I'm not that. Let me explain to you why I'm not that. Let me explain to you. Let, let me show you why those are wrong. He simply asked the question, and the question that we need to have asked of us, the second thing there in your outline, who do you say that Jesus is? 
There are those out there, and this is what they say, but the question Jesus puts to the disciples is, who do you say that I am? Who, who do we today, at Bloomfield Baptist Church, who do we say that Jesus is? Jesus poses this question to the disciples, but we see in verse 20, Peter, as the spokesman here, gives the response. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And that title, Christ of God, is the Greek rendering of the Hebrew title Messiah. It means the anointed one. Well, what Peter is confessing here is that, that, that the one that God's people had been looking for and longing for, the one who would be the deliverer, the rescuer, the one who would come as God's Messiah to lead his people to the kingdom that they believed, Peter says that Jesus indeed was the anointed one, the one who would indeed deliver God's people. And yet at this point, Peter and the other disciples don't understand how that deliverance is going to happen. In fact, again, as we look to the other gospel accounts, we find in Matthew and Mark's accounts that as Jesus, as he does here in Luke, tells the disciples about what is to come, that, that he must suffer he must die and that he'll be raised on the third day. In Matthew and Mark's Gospels, we read that, that Peter rebukes Jesus. Jesus says, who am I? Peter says, you're the Christ. He gets that right. Jesus then says how he will deliver. And Peter's response is, well, no, you won't. <laughs> you're not going to do that. It may it never be, Jesus. I mean, how does Peter go from being so right in one moment to so wrong in the other? How do we? Now, I find comfort in this. That, that Peter can make this great orthodox profession about Jesus and then, moments later, completely miss it. And friends, it's entirely possible for us to do that too, isn't it? for us to gather together on the Lord's Day and sing about grace and mercy and forgiveness and walk out these doors and forget about grace and mercy and forgiveness. Or just remember it as it applies to us, but not to others. I mean, perhaps some of you didn't have the most sanctified morning today. <laughs> and maybe you came in these doors running late and feeling guilty about what you just said to your kids. And then you open up your mouth and you sing about these glorious truths. And then, you know, there's something else to fuss about when you leave. Or maybe we gather together and we, we read a passage about trusting God in the midst of suffering and, and believing and trusting and we smile and we sing and we pray and we say, yes, this is the truth. And then... The first moment of anxiety on Monday and our life is shipwrecked and it's as if we never heard any of that. I believe what we see from Peter is what we see in our own lives. And this up and this down, this, this height and this depth. And yet, we need to understand that these aren't all by our own devices, meaning that it's not that Peter here and the other disciples have have been spending their whole lifetimes unpacking 
prophecy charts and, and reading through the Old Testament prophets and, and charting and saying, well, here's there the Messiah will come and here's what the Messiah will do. And now we see this is him. That they haven't figured all this out on their own. In fact, Matthew's gospel makes that clear because as soon as Peter makes this great confession, in Matthew 16, 17, Jesus says to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. When Peter makes this great confession, Jesus says to him, You're blessed because God's revealed the truth to you. You didn't figure this out on your own. God has opened up your eyes to see. Now again, Peter's going to miss the resurrection in a moment when Jesus speaks of it. He's not going to understand it. Why? Because God hasn't fully revealed that to him yet. He'll get it eventually. I mean, go home today and, and read First and Second Peter. They're very short. You'll read them quickly. And you'll find someone who at that point fully understands the resurrection of Jesus and proclaims the resurrection of Jesus. What happens to, to this Peter between this time and that time? God reveals the truth to him that he might see and understand. And I believe God has revealed the truth to us that we might see and understand. But we're not at this moment with Peter where, where he's gotten part of the truth but not all of it yet. We have it all before us today. And so the scripture says we're without excuse when it comes to this question. Who do we say that Jesus is? How do you answer that question? Now, I thought it would be interesting this week to, to look at modern technology and how it answers that question. And so I got on one of the, the AI engines on the internet and I typed in, who is Jesus? And, and surprisingly, it was a very orthodox answer. But what was not surprising is the answer was all framed under the umbrella of those who practice the Christian faith believe. Their truth is this. But friends, this isn't just something for us. This is the truth for the world. It's not sufficient to say, well, well, we as Christians believe this and others believe this, and it's okay if we all believe our own thing as long as we're sincere. No. God has proclaimed the truth to us all that we might believe and accept this truth. And when it comes to this fundamental question, who is Jesus? We are without excuse. We stand before God one day and say, well, my parents believe this. My church believes this. Now the question for you today is, what do you believe? Every one of you, what do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus Christ, truly man and truly God, that he came and lived a perfect life, that he was obedient to God to the point of death, that he died on a cross in your place and in mine, paid the penalty for your sins and mine, that we upon hearing this truth might repent of our sin and place our faith in him as our Lord, our Messiah, our Deliverer, live a life of repentance and faith, trusting in him, obeying his word and longing for the day of his return. 
Is that what you believe this morning? Because that's what Jesus did. Peter and the others, they didn't understand at this point that this is what he would do. But we have it fully before us. And so he then tells them this, which leads us to that final question, number three, what did Jesus come to do? And so he, he tells them these things, verse 21, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Again, Peter's confession that he is the Messiah. And then he said this, the Son of God must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, again, it may seem confusing. Why did Jesus strictly charge and command the disciples not to tell anyone he's the Christ? And I believe the answer for that's right here. They make this great profession, or Peter does. He confesses, Jesus, you're the Christ. And then he says, well, don't tell anyone. Why? Because the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And so I think in God's providence, what Jesus is saying, well, if you go and proclaim this message right now, then that's going to interfere with this providential plan of God. Because what must happen now it's based on the ministry that has taken place, based on the word that has been proclaimed, that the chief scribes, the elders, they're going to come and they're going to arrest me. They're going to falsely accuse me and falsely try me and falsely convict me. But it's going to be under the providence of God and in the sovereign plan of God, I will then go to the cross. I will die in your place. The Father will raise me from the dead. And this is all according to the plan of God. You think about how Peter responded when Jesus says this. <laughs> no. And, and if this had been the message that went forward from there, if the disciples had then gone back out, back out two by two and said, he is the Messiah, he is the Christ, we need to make sure nobody lays a hand on him. I mean, how does Peter respond in the garden when they come from Jesus? He's ready to fight. And had Jesus not strictly charged him and commanded, I would imagine by that point, he would have had a militia there fighting with him. I speculate that, but I believe the two are connected because Jesus says, don't tell anyone this. Why? Because these things need to happen. This is the providence of God. These things will be revealed in time that many might believe, but I have to go to the cross first. And this is indeed why Jesus came. And again, Peter would come to fully understand this. In fact, he would write about it. As I mentioned before, First and Second Peter, I'll read you just the beginning of 1 Peter. This is what the Peter, Peter, the same Peter, who has so many ups and downs, who struggles so much to get this stuff, this is where we find him in 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. One of the greatest statements of the assurance we have in the gospel of our Lord Jesus and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus comes from this one who at that point didn't fully get it. But he would. And the question for us today is, do we? 
And let me say this as plainly as I can tonight. It's not enough to just come on Sunday and hear this. And it's not enough to be raised in a family that believes this, although that's a, that's a blessing. Coming here is a blessing. That, that's a good thing. But it's not enough. And it's not enough just to be married to someone who has a very sincere faith. Because one day, you and I, we, we are going to stand before God. And the question for us is not going to be, who did your church say that I am? Who did your spouse say that I am? Who did your parents say that I am? The question is going to be for every single one of you. And we all will be accountable to that question. Who do we say that Jesus is? God's word tells us very clearly that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of our sin is death. But in Romans 5, 8, we read that God has demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. And we're called into account. We're responsible for that truth in Romans 10 that we, we need to confess, every one of us, Jesus is Lord, that we, each one of us, needs to believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. And if we will do those things, he, he will save us. And all of us who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. The question this morning is, have you called on the name of the Lord? And if you haven't, then we invite you to do that today. If you would stand together as I pray for us.